Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. We have been reading a lot. We all have been reading a lot about genocide. What we have forgotten, it seems to me, is one of the more recent horrifying examples of genocide, which is what has happened in Darfur. And that war, that atrocity of, to, to, to human beings and to the human condition in Darfur continues. We are lucky. We are blessed to have in Northampton one of the country's leading experts on Darfur. Eric Reeves is the project, uh, I think co-founder would be the right word. We'll find out for sure of Project Zamzam in Darfur, North Darfur, a project responding to sexual violence. Eric Reeves, thank you so much for being with us today. We really are pleased that you can be back on the show. I, I think that many listeners probably have lost track long ago of what happened in Darfur, so perhaps you could give us a bit of a primer on what the his history is, and then we're going to go to well, as soon as we can, what is happening today, which I think most people will find horrifying and will have the reaction, I didn't know that. So give us a bit of a background, if you would, please, and then bring us up to date. The history goes back to 2003 when genocide in Darfur began. But the moment of most significance currently is April 15th of last year, when violence broke out between the two military leaders in the country, one, Hamdan Dagalo, better known as Hameti, and the other, he's the head of the Rapid Support Forces, a, a brutal militia responsible for most of the genocide in Darfur in the later years, and General Al-Burhan, who is head of the Sudan Armed Forces, they are now engaged in an immensely destructive fight that has engulfed all of Sudan and prevents humanitarian aid from reaching the more westerly parts of the country. The World Food Program just yesterday estimated that more than half of Sudan's 48 million people are food insecure. And if you start to look at severe acute malnutrition, a technical term along with severe acute malnutrition, you're seeing situations that put children under five at extreme risk. In Zamzam camp, where my own project uh, uh, exists, what we're seeing is children dying at a rate of one every two hours from starvation, and that number is growing. And the World Food Program has no way of getting food to Darfur, anywhere in Darfur. Uh, and we have an inevitable famine. The only question is, how extensive will this famine be? How many lives will it claim? There's a good chance it will claim hundreds of thousands of lives. I hardly know where to begin the next question, but I will ask you this uh, just set the stage for us, if you would, a bit. Darfur, Sudan, South Sudan, what is the relationship? Uh, and, and in particular, I'd like to uh, have your perspective on how famine can be 
overtaking uh, Darfur, uh, and I take it other parts of Sudan, um, when the countries around it, surrounding it, are by African standards uh, relatively wealthy, including Egypt to the north, uh, Uganda to the south, and the like. So tell us a bit more about that. How is this country unraveling, and why are people starving? Well, first of all, it, it became really important in 2011 to separate Sudan and South Sudan. South Sudan became an independent country, and uh, it has its own woeful share of problems. But a sense of how bad things are is that people are fleeing from Sudan into South Sudan, as well as to some of its much poorer neighbors, including uh, Chad preeminently. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people have fled from Darfur uh, into eastern Chad. These people are dramatically underserved by humanitarian organizations. In fact, there's virtually no humanitarian footprint in Darfur and a very small footprint uh, given the scale of the crisis in eastern Chad. These are the areas I think we're most worried about. But there's a larger answer to your uh, question about how. Uh, for over 30 years, the regime of Omar al-Bashir, which came to power by a military coup in June of 1989, has run the agricultural sector of the country into the ground. Sudan should be a breadbasket for northeastern Africa. Instead, uh, people are starving because there is no fertilizer, there's no support for the farmers. Um, people who farm in Darfur find they can't work their farms because the rapid support forces, militia and other Arab militias, prevent their working the land or trample the crops when with their cattle when um, when they're about to be harvested. Um, it, it's, it's really almost incomprehensible if you look at a map by the famine early warning um, systems network, the, the real gold standard for how malnutrition uh, uh, exists in a given country. And in Sudan, the entire country is on the verge of moving into famine. Darfur, explain, if you would, please, Darfur is where geographically in Sudan? Well, if we remember that Sudan, as it exists now, borders seven countries, Egypt, Libya, Chad, Central African Republic, South Sudan, Ethiopia, Eritrea. It, it's a very complicated country uh, with complicated relations with all those neighbors. But Darfur is the large area in the far west of the country, roughly the size of Spain. Um, it is exceedingly remote. There is a place in South Darfur that is further from any navigable body of water than any other place in Africa. It's very remote. It's very hard to get there. There's plenty of humanitarian assistance waiting on the Red Sea in Port Sudan, but there's no way to convey it a thousand miles to Darfur. And as a consequence, uh, the major arteries, which have been severed by fighting, leave these people uh, uh, to their own uh, very limited resources. 
I'm going to ask a question to you, Eric Reeves, that may strike you as uh, bordering on the utterly ignorant, but I'm going to do it anyway. How is it that there can be a widespread famine uh, impending in a large country where children are at desperate risk of dying from lack of food and water, not to mention medical supplies, and as far as I can tell, the world is paying next to no attention. How is that possible? Well, it's not that some, including myself, haven't been screaming about the uh, threat of famine insofar as we're able. Uh, I did my first interview ever with the uh, primetime BBC World News television program just recently. Uh, and that's a measure of how it has finally caught the attention of uh, the world, but it's been up against uh, the Israel-Gaza conflict. It's been up against Ukraine. It's been up against the absurdity of American politics. Uh, There have been a few voices, but very few, uh, who've been pointing uh, with alarm to what we know are the severe malnutrition rates. the fighting has gone on much longer than anyone thought. It's been more disruptive. Uh, and again, without the food corridors and medicine corridors from uh, Port Sudan on the Red Sea to Darfur and to the neighboring states of Sudan, the three Kordofan states, uh, we're, we're going to see uh, just an acceleration of uh, famine and death. Well, it strikes me as impossible that there is not some solution. There seems to be food available, at least what you're, what you're telling us in Port Sudan. Uh, there is a way to get food from the port to the places and the ge- geographically where people are starving. This just isn't going to happen because of military conflict. Is that what you're telling us? It would appear so. The African Union held a summit in uh, Addis Ababa last week. African uh, civil society organizations pled with the summit to uh, invoke uh, Article 4 of the Constituent, uh, Constitution of the African Union, which allows for, uh, it's very restrictive in, in the introduction of armed force into other countries, but when there are crimes against humanity and when there is uh, the acute threat of famine or other natural disasters, uh, troops can be authorized. And they could be authorized to escort uh, convoys from Port Sudan to Darfur. Um, the African Union is a, is a failed organization. It's essentially the same organization of African Union, a unity that... Uh, uh, failed so miserably as a predecessor, um, and no action is being taken. Unless those convoys can be escorted, no humanitarian organizations, not the World Food Program, uh, none of the uh, international non-government organizations will make their way along that dangerous route, thousand miles, even though it goes well south of Khartoum, which is where fighting has been most concentrated. They just won't go, and uh, how can they be blamed? The 
they may be attacked at any moment by the rapid sport forces. Um, and so we're, we're in, in effectively in a, uh, a stalemate uh, with people dying as a result of that stalemate. Uh, the world community, one way or another, needs to figure out a way to get supplies, food, medicine, shelter, to the people of Darfur and uh, the bordering Kordofan states. We are speaking with Northampton-based Eric Reeves, who is a founder of Project ZamZam. I want to share with you a sentence or two from his most recent update. Uh, It says this. This is to those on uh, Team ZamZam's mailing list. The deteriorating humanitarian conditions in Sudan, especially in Darfur, have been evident since the beginning of the war that began in April 2023. It is difficult to convey in words how dire these conditions are and how difficult life has become. Although the people in Darfur suffered from the former Sudanese regime throughout their lives, the recent war taking place between the army and the rapid support forces, those militias and city-states and the national capital has become a terrible new tragedy for the Sudanese people. Death rates are high. Violence has forced millions to flee their homes and to become refugees in neighboring countries. We'll continue our conversation with Eric Reeves, and we'll hear about Project ZamZam responding successfully, we should point out, to sexual violence in Darfur. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Northampton-based founder of Team ZamZam in Darfur, Eric Reeves. We have been talking about the humanitarian crisis, the impending famine in Darfur and in Sudan. Uh, Eric Reeves is the project uh, co-founder of ZamZam, Team ZamZam. Tell us what Team ZamZam is and tell us about the camps in which ZamZam is operating and functioning today. Uh, For a long time, it's been the case that responding to women and girls traumatized by brutal sexual violence, genocidal sexual violence, gang rapes, uh, they... They've been ostracized. They've been uh, shamed. Uh, in many cases, they've been er- uh, injured to the point where they need fistula surgery. Uh, the project began, though, uh, trying to fill this uh, huge gap in humanitarian assistance in ZamZam. We've expanded to providing food such as is available to, um, to the very neediest, uh, the poorest, the disabled, the most elderly in the camp. But this is an enormous camp. It's 450,000 people. And it's the opposite of an idyllic trip to the woods. This is a camp. Many dwellings consist of no more than rags and sticks. Um, uh, The older parts of the camp, and it is uh, 20 years old now, uh, some people have known no life outside this displaced persons camp. But displaced persons camps are not a place where people want to go. Uh, uh, shortages are chronic. Uh, so far, we've been able to, uh, Team ZamZam has been able to rehabilitate eight water wells. But when the humanitarian organizations left 
Zamzam years ago, they left no uh, hydrologists in place, no trained personnel. So 95% of the wells in the camp don't function or function only partially. Uh, the wells we're rehabilitating um, provide a great deal of water, in fact, to many thousands of people. But again, it's almost impossible to... It is now the largest camp for displaced persons in all of Darfur, 450,000 and growing as violence in Darfur sends more and more people fleeing from their homes and their villages and their, their towns. Project Zamzam does what specifically? Well, we have a team of 20 psychosocial counselors, very experienced, seasons. They received initial training, but they've really grown into their jobs. Their primary task, again, is to provide psychosocial counseling to girls and women who are so deeply ashamed of themselves for having been raped, are socially ostracized, uh, exist in a state of post-traumatic stress syndrome, disorder and they often have suicidal ideation sometimes they commit suicide it's impossible i think for us to understand how fully traumatizing sexual violence in darfur has been over the past 20 years it's been ethnically motivated uh arab attackers uh non-arab uh women and girls the attacked uh, it continues to this day. Uh, we, at this point, have uh, given counseling to over 5,000 girls and women, and we're approaching 100 women who've been sent to a clinic in the nearby city of El Fasha, which is the capital of North Darfur, for reparative fistula surgery. Uh, I encourage people to look up just how awful traumatic fistulas are. Uh, they they leave women often in agony, uh, day in, day out, unable to move, unable to live any sort of life. And uh, we have a very, very high success rate with these women. But the waiting list, we haven't reached 100 women who want it, uh, have wanted it, and over 200 are on the waiting list. And it's a terrible triage that the counselors have to perform to decide which of the three uh, women or girls will get surgery in a given month. That's all we can afford at present. Terrible as the conditions are in Zamzam camp and the other camps. And, well, let me read back to you two sentences from included in your most recent report. You say this under the heading, the security situation around North Darfur. The Jajaweed militias, known as the Rapid Support Forces, have imposed their control over several cities, towns, and villages in South Darfur, East Darfur, West Darfur, and Central Darfur. Hundreds of thousands of citizens, in particular residents of camps for displaced women and children, have fled to neighboring countries. And you go on to say, living conditions in Zamzam continue to to deteriorate with the fighting that North Darfur State has witnessed since the beginning of the war. Are the people in Camp Zamzam, at least relatively safe from the fighting, and or is are they in constant danger? I would emphasize the word relatively. Uh, 
yes, they are relatively secure. They are protected by the nearby presence of El Fasher, which is the only state capital that is still controlled by the Sudan Armed Forces, but also by former Darfuri rebel groups uh, and an increasingly armed citizenry, which is determined that the rapid support forces will not take El Fasher. El Fasher is some 15 miles to uh, the northeast, but provides a kind of umbrella of security for uh, Zamzam proper. As soon as girls or women leave the camp, though, within a kilometer or two, they're at risk of sexual assault. Um, it's, it's a very, very dangerous place by any standards we might be familiar with. It is not like El Janaina, the capital of West Darfur, where the Masli people, one of the non-Arab uh, African tribal groups, were slaughtered by the tens of thousands by the Janjaweed uh, this year and last year. Uh, they have now, in the main, fled to uh, uh, eastern Chad. Um, but that security is very, very tenuous. Uh, and I'm in touch regularly with my colleague, uh, Gafar, Gafar Mohammed Sanin, who is himself Sagawa, and uh, one of the notable things about the Sudan Armed Forces contingent in El Fasha is that it's made up of Zagawa, not Riverine Arab troops. And the Zagawa have a particular hatred of the northern Rizagat Arab tribe, which has uh, been the source over the years of Janjaweed and Rapid Sport Forces recruitment. You say in your newsletter, recently we have noticed the spread of diseases caused by insects, including flies, which abound in large numbers in mosquitoes. There's a great deal of infectious disease spread by displaced themselves, conjunctivitis, diarrhea, typhoid, severe malnutrition among children, gynecological diseases, birth and delivery of deformed children, frequent neonatal deaths, miscarriages among women. Most hospitals, clinics, and health centers have been closed for fear of the fighting. Is there any medical attention in ZamZam that alleviates these conditions? There's one small Doctors Without Borders clinic, but it's, um, it's really um, uh, a frontline medical operation. It's very important, um, but in a camp of 450,000, it can't possibly respond to the health needs of that population. Um, one of the problems is that um, there's not enough clean water. It's, it's clean water that is essential to prevent uh, waterborne diseases. Um, the, the standing water from the last rain created a huge rainy season, created a huge population of uh, disease-carrying uh, insects, primarily mosquitoes. Um, but people are much more vulnerable to disease when they're malnourished. And the level of uh, malnourishment, as I've said before, continues to rise ominously. Um, and there's no sign that that increase uh, will be reversed. On the contrary, it's accelerating. People who don't have enough to eat, uh, actually, they typically don't die of starvation, though sometimes it is starvation. It's rather that the body's immune system is so weakened by a lack of food that it can't fight off even minor illnesses. That's what we're seeing in, in, in uh, increasing uh, 
number of cases in in Zamzam and elsewhere in uh, Darfur. Eric Reeves, I, I don't want to leave without some glimmer of hope here. Is there? Well, that's the hardest question you've asked. Um, one thing I'll say about Team Zamzam is that it provides a morale boost to the camp as a whole. Uh, we can't possibly uh, provide for a population of that size. But one of the things that people who are refugees or IDPs fear most is that they have been forgotten. And Team Zamzam provides to the entire camp a sense that, no, we haven't been forgotten entirely. Uh, there are people who care about us. There are people who are willing to dig wells, uh, provide visual surgeries for our women and girls, and provide counseling for those who suffer from the aftermath of uh, sexual violence. Uh, but that's, that's only a small glimmer of hope. And uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, that a child dies of malnutrition every two hours in the camp, day in, day out. When that number reaches four or 10 or 20, we're going to have uh, a camp that is deeply, deeply demoralized. Eric Reeves, we thank you for your work. We thank you for sharing this information with us. People want to contribute to Project ZamZam. How do they do that? Well, I have a, a, a site where I offer the sale of my wood turnings, Eric, www.ericreeves-woodturner.com. Um, people can also send me uh, contributions directly. There's also on that site uh, a portal through which uh, another humanitarian organization has allowed us uh, to make uh, people to make tax-deductible contributions to Project Samsam. Um, there are a lot of ways to help. Uh, more money is desperately needed, uh, but we will do what we can with what we have. Eric Reeves, thank you so very much for all you do. Thank we'll, you, Bill. We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.